AT&T ThreatTrack is a roundtable discussion of the latest network security trends and news conducted by AT&T data security analysts. Complete video of this show is available at techchannel.att.com. So on ThreatTrack, we're always learning something new, either from our teammates, uh, who are our mentors, or uh, from well-known industry leaders in their own space. So it's always exciting to either both be watching ThreatTrack or even be a participant and kind of get to ask questions firsthand and, and see uh, you know, what's new out there. So Stan, I'm thinking a lot about cyber deception, um, possibly approaching a, using it in our own enterprise. And uh, I figured we'd have somebody on who really understands the topic better than pretty much anybody. Gadi Evron is the founder and CEO of Symmetria and they do deception technology, which is something I've always kind of been interested in. So we have Gadi Evron today. How's it going? I'm doing great, how are you? I'm feeling all right. I'm really happy to have you here with us today. So I figured, um, let's start at the very beginning. What is cyber deception? Uh, first of all, thank you for having me. What is cyber deception? There are many, many ways of defining cyber deception or speaking about the technology, and, and there's so many types of cyber deception. For me, I'll just use my own definition. It's a reasonable, affordable, ethical and empowering way of counterintelligence, meaning when an attacker gathers information, when they do reconnaissance, when they gather intelligence, they gather our information. They make decisions on what to do next based on our information, meaning if we control our information and they gather that information and they make decisions based on our information, we can control them. And for me, regardless of what the actual implementation is or what you want to achieve by it, that is cyber deception. When I typically think of, of deception, the first thing that comes to mind is honeypots, which have been around for a while, but I imagine there are other technologies that fall under this heading. I always knew that deception technology was more than just honeypots, but I, I tended to reduce it to that in my mind. If we want to start with honeypots, and, and why not, really? Honeypots are a technology that we all like and none of us trust. And those who manage to actually make use of it I found it extremely hard to do so. It's a, it's a research technology, really, and it stopped developing somewhere in the 90s or early 2000s. And those that actually invested the time and effort, say, hire a couple of guys to work nonstop on it, and then the guys leave and it all collapses. Let, let's take a step back to the technology for a second. If we look at honeypots, essentially, we have a low interaction machine. We have a script. We have an emulation that tries to look like a certain service. So let's assume for a second I want to emulate HTTP or even just port 80, depending on if I actually go this far, then the attacker can come in and just fingerprint it. He can say, or he, she can say, that's not real. And pretty simply just stop worrying about it and move on. They might actually, depending on the sophistication of the emulation, run their exploit, don't work, and maybe it's not even caught, and move on. Mm -hmm. They don't even need to fingerprint it. But let's say we solve that problem. Let's say we go and create a real operating system, more than just a even high interaction machine. Let's get real operating system, real services. Everything is real and it's just a simple machine and then it's instrumented so we can monitor whatever happens on it. And then the attacker runs code on that machine. Yep. There is no false positive. That is an attacker on our network and that is the full forensic information about everything the attacker did that we could see. Where they came from on our network, um, what kind of tools they're using, what kind of commands they're running, what they're interested in, and so on and so forth. But the challenge with honeypots wasn't just about deployment, it wasn't just about um, the technology itself. It was also about why would an attacker ever go there? 
And people started creating models of statistics. How many do we need to deploy across how many VLANs and across our entire infrastructure? And for me, that's just wrong. We can see consistently that, number one, attackers change their tool sets. Number two, they rarely manage to reach their target immediately. They break into the network, and then they need to do lateral movement and pivot around the network to reach their actual target. And third, they use the same methodology, the same decision-making process. Some of us in the industry call it the kill chain. I personally don't like that term. I think it's overused. And that is where they're essentially vulnerable. Let's assume a scenario for a second. Somebody broke into your network. We now assume compromise in cybersecurity. We assume the attacker is already in, right? Mm -hmm. And let's assume a scenario such as spear phishing, where somebody took over a laptop at the cafe or whatever it is. They exhausted your computer, and now they want to move on. They want to pivot to the network, and what are they going to do next? They're going to search for your credentials, your shares, your cookies, run mimicats, pass the hash, and the entire reason for that is to figure out where to go to next. And not only that, where to go to next in a persistent path, or on a persistent path. Your whitelisted path as a user that you would follow anyway. Mm -hmm. Basic lateral movement. And that is the key. When they move around, it used to be that an attacker would have to succeed only once, and we would have to be successful every single time, everywhere. The good guys, we always have to get it right. Every day, you know, we have to make sure all of the systems are protected. But the bad guy, he only has to find one weakness, one vulnerability, and that will allow them to make it into the network. Now, when they reach my endpoint or any endpoint after that, and again and again and again through the network, if they choose wrong even once, they see an RDP credential, they see an SSH key, they see a cookie to GitHub, what, whatever it is, if they choose wrong even once, anywhere, they connect to my environment, which is the machine we mentioned earlier. You're trying to level the field. You're giving them so much false information that now maybe they're, you know, they, they are going to pick the wrong information. They're going to go down the wrong path, not achieve their mission. You're in control of basically the mission of the bad guy. So the entire point with um, modern deception, the, the basics of technology before we get to the value and how we actually do something with it, is to create this path from the endpoints toward my decoy or my environment. And that combination and more advanced combination thereof are what we call stories, which I would like to get into later. But these breadcrumbs on the endpoints leading to the decoys are essentially what I believe cyber deception is. And this, the, the coolness of this is not just the technology, but rather philosophically. If you think about it, the burden of anomaly detection, the burden of figuring out what's real and what's not is now on them. Mm. We just shifted it around which for me, and I'll stop myself here, goes into the asymmetry we face in, in cybersecurity and um, whether it's uh, strategically, controls-wise, economically, dynamics, uh, us not being static, them being maneuverable, them being able to download everything and learn it. It just changes everything, and it's not a silver bullet. It's not, it doesn't solve the world's problems as far as cybersecurity goes but it definitely changes the asymmetry and their economics. And that is the key here for me. Okay. So it sounds like you're creating, you're not just putting honeypots on the network and hoping someone will find them. We're putting, you know, valuable information to lead them in that, those, I guess we'll call them breadcrumbs, and any just sort of seeding them. You're finding, you're basically modeling an attack on your own network and then putting those, those breadcrumbs exactly along the trail you want them to, almost to, to lead them off into the maze, so to say. You could, but you don't necessarily have to. You need to think about it more as a maturity model of what you want to achieve. And naturally, deception can go 
It's, there are so many use cases, from incident response all the way to uh, the basics. But just to concentrate on what we spoke of, the minute you start deploying deception, let's say even with just some breadcrumbs on your network, lateral movement has just become extremely expensive for the attacker. And the reason for that is if you think back to – you don't even need to do something too complex to think where you put the defense, uh, defensive measures. Uh, if you think back to Stuxnet, for example, mm -hmm. Stuxnet had code in it that was 12 years old. Think about that for a minute. Now, imagine you're running a 12-years operation, let's just say 2,500 operations a year. And after 12 years, all of a sudden, your persistent tool is gone. And all the intelligence based on that, and the operations based on that, and the intelligence based on that, and the methodologies based on that, and the methods that we're used to that are all gone in a day. If you think back to the Mandy and APT-1 report, they had, after the report, I think they were gone for a year and a half when the infrastructure went down. So you can see how the threat actor started to evolve by using uh, living off the ground, right? Using more PowerShell, uh, using throwaway tools, uh, tools they can download off the internet to make sure that they don't risk their tool sets. At the same time, investing more of their efforts into the second stage tool sets to persistent tools. Cyber deception essentially means that when you do lateral movement now, which you don't really have that many, if any, controls for nowadays, most of our controls are on the outside or on the endpoint, we have a lot of visibility outside, not a lot of visibility inside, essentially, then the point becomes you make one mistake and you lose your ability to conduct operations. You're not only caught. So your operation is compromised, your tool set is compromised, your methodology is compromised, your other operations around the world are potentially compromised. It's uh, escalating... Um, I guess, slippery slope of how much you committed to the operation. The beautiful thing is, even if I didn't catch an attacker, which, for example, asset symmetry already caught five nation state APT attackers, but let's say we don't. That's the very fact that you can no longer rely on lower-hanging fruit. You can no longer rely on basic tool sets. You can no longer rely on just enumerating through the credentials. That changes everything. That increases your cost. And if you have to invest in every single operation, every single hack, or whatever you want to call it, as much as you would in your top attacks and bring your A-team and all the, the resources you would for the top attacks, for every single attack out there, that increases your cost exponentially. It's all about economics for me. I certainly got inspired by him. He's not only looking at it from, hey, what can we do, like the controls that we can place or another type of control. It's really a different way of thinking about it. So that's inspiring, you know, reminding us, hey, with security, you really do have to think out of the box. You have to try new things. And he also speaks of it not just as a technology, but as a methodology or even a philosophy. And I find that really interesting and engaging to listen to because he's clearly thought about this for years and years. And to see him get excited about it, is, it only makes me more excited to hear more about it. Jim is a great mentor to me. Uh, when, I, when I started here at the company, uh, he was one of the lead reverse engineers. And I've actually, over the years, have learned a lot from him being able to you know, reverse engineer and figure out how malware works. Hey Jim, uh, hope everything is going well. I know you spent a lot of time reverse engineering uh, Petya, not Petya malware, and uh, I'm kind of curious as a reverse engineer myself to hear uh, what you found. Yeah, I had a lot of fun over the last couple <laughs> of weeks. I was glad you were on vacation so I could get <laughs> time on our Ida Pro lab. Didn't have to fight you for it. Um, <laughs> Yeah, when when the NotPetya stuff hit the news uh, almost two weeks ago now, I managed to get my hands on a sample because I wanted to take a look at it and see 
what it was doing, you know, how we'd be able to detect it, be able to inoculate ourselves against it or our customers against it. So he really looked at one of the the big malware samples that's kind of been reported a few weeks ago, uh, the not PT ransomware. There, there was some really interesting stuff in there. The first thing to note was it seems pretty clear that the author of this not Petya was not the same author as the original Petya and Goldeneye. Uh, it looks like somebody stole his or her code and made some modifications to it. And I based that partly on the fact that it looks like they implemented some of the stuff they stole improperly. One of the big things that everybody was talking about when it first hit was, you know, it propagates via the MS17-010 vulnerabilities, you know, Eternal Blue uh, and Eternal Romance, just like WannaCry did, you know, two months ago. But what was more interesting to me was that wasn't the only propagation mechanism. Mm -hmm. It also propagated via WMI and admin shares and via PSExec. But one of the interesting things was it actually packaged its own copy of PSExec inside the DLL as one of the resources. Some people were talking about, you know, as a possible defense, maybe via um, group policy disabling PSExec or only allowing admins to run PSExec. But that wouldn't have done any good in this case because it had its own copy of PSExec that it was dropping. Another interesting thing was in also in the resources section of the DLL, it had two copies of Mimikatz. Uh, it had a 32-bit copy and a 64-bit copy. And it, it appears that uh, what it would do is it would try to run whichever copy of Mimikatz was appropriate for the system that got infected and try to uh, harvest credentials. But it wasn't harvesting the credentials, you know, to, to send back to the mothership, you know, like an APT actor would, or, you know, to send back and sell, you know, on the black market or anything. It appears to only use these credentials to attempt further propagation, lateral movement. Hey, Jim, I was wondering, uh, and I'm not that much of a Windows guy, but I was curious why both PSExec and WMI? I think they included both WMI and PSExec and the admin shares just to have a better chance of spreading more widely. Okay. One of the features that's been debated by some in the press is whether or not this was really a wiper that was, that was posing as ransomware or whether the, the author just screwed up in their implementation of it. They generate the encryption keys, but they don't try to upload them to a mothership or anything. So this doesn't look like it was ever really, to me, like it was ever really intended to be ransomware because they never saved the keys off someplace. So even if you paid the ransom, you're not gonna be able to get your files back. And because they encrypt the MFT without giving you a key to it, basically once the system is rebooted and started the, that encryption process, the system's hosed. Uh, you may be able to carve some files back out, but you're not gonna be able to recover much of anything. So it, 
whether that was intentional or accidental on the part of the author, I, you know, I'm not going to try to guess their motivation, but it, it, this was really destructive malware. It wasn't, it wasn't just ransomware. There was no functional way for anybody who was infected by this ransomware to ever get their files back. And that's half of the, the I want to call it a value proposition, but half of the business model of ransomware is that they encrypt your machines, they hold it for ransom, you pay them, and then you get your files back. I was just curious for the malware itself, did you find that it was like obfuscated or packed in some way? It's usually a good way to like gauge maybe how advanced the adversary is or maybe how much in a hurry they were. The code in the DLL was mostly not obfuscated. They did encrypt the additional software that they included as resources. This was really a, a fascinating piece of malware to, to examine. Well, it sounds like you had a lot of fun uh, digging into this one. I'm sorry I was on vacation, not able to help you. <laughs> yeah, well, like I said, I'm glad you were on vacation, so I had the lab to myself. <laughs> it's always good to hear Jim doing his thing um, and learning a little bit more about reverse engineering. It sounds like he spent a good deal of time in Ida Pro reverse engineering this malware for fun. Um, and yes, it, it can be fun. All right, so now let's take a look at the internet weather for this week. Uh, these are the top 10 most probed ports for the last week. And as you can see in the, uh, the changes chart over here, there's not too many big uh, movers and shakers. Port 23 continues to have the top spot. That telnet scanning is still, uh, it's probably never going away. Port 22 TCP is SSH, which is, you know, also been towards the top for a long time. 1433 is MS SQL Server, which has been around the top for a while as well. I am still curious as to why that is. I guess we'll have to do There's a little probably some vulnerabilities there, right? And I think that's maybe made the news. And you'd think with that kind of volume that somebody else would have... Yeah, that's true. Yeah, maybe... Uh, I wonder how that breaks down for the most sources scanning and we where this appears. Yeah. Support 80 TCP has always as far as I can remember, it's always been in the top 10. There's so many different things running on 80 that it's, it's hard to say definitively what one thing is. And a variety of exploits is how I would describe it. That's a good one. There was an Apache Struts 2 vulnerability oh, yes. that just got released. Yeah, yeah. That certainly contributes to it. Uh, port 445 is uh, SMB, which we've been seeing WannaCry and potentially not Petya uh, scanning for for a, while, a couple of months now. It's almost, yeah. almost at the two-month mark. Do you realize that? Uh, yeah, I didn't uh, keep track, but wow. Yeah. What a, what a two-month mark, huh? <laughs> uh, so port 1900 is um, UPnP. 3389 is RDP, Remote Desktop Protocol. 1911 is the Niagara AX Protocol, I believe. Um, that's that HVAC system automation. Uh, port 21 is FTP, and port 8080 is another alternate web port. Right, sometimes used for proxies, I think. Also sometimes used for proxies. All right, we'll take a look at the top 10 most sources probing. This is sort of a measure of the interest in a port by a variety of sources as opposed to this just the volume of, of probes. Port 23 is still at the top, has not changed. Port 45 is in second place, has not changed. Port 22 is in third place, has not changed. Wow. Yeah, but it looks like the 1433 is not on this port. That means it's probably not a botnet or not a lot of people looking for it. It could be it. a very small handful of sources yeah. probing. Maybe security researchers who are trying to like enumerate or maybe somebody who knows something specific about a specific vulnerability. Very true. We've seen stuff like that in the past as well. Yep. Uh, 80 ICMP is in fifth. 21 TCP is FTP, which did appear on the last one. Uh, that's up one spot. It's interesting that there's more people looking for it now. Uh, that is interesting. Okay. Yeah. Um, so 00 ICMP is in the eighth spot. That's up five places, actually. I should 
And then port 6881, I believe, is related to BitTorrent. Am I right? Uh, I think it is one of those P2P protocols. Yeah, I'm surprised to see it here. I must not have been... Uh Paying attention to internet weather, has that spiked up, I guess, last week? It as was well? around, uh, so eight, uh, 6881 TCP was um, in the 10th spot last week. Okay. Uh, 6881 UDP has actually eclipsed the TCP brother of its. Um, so that's an interesting one. And yeah. the thing about BitTorrent, again, is that it is by nature P2P. So, yeah. so it, it, it makes, makes it harder to tell whether it's scanning or it's just natural traffic. Right, yeah, but it is, you know, it's a P2P protocol and it makes sense that there's a lot of sources probing for this port. Sure. Uh, there could have been a change in the traffic or some, you know, something going on. So it's, it's interesting that it's here um, and, uh, yeah, it makes sense too. Cool. So scan sources on port 23 TCP Telnet still quite significant. We're coming around uh, 75 to, see, 75 to 80,000 sources. Uh, per hour, and it seems to actually be trending up slightly at this point. Yeah, that's, uh, you know, looking 30 days, it looks like it's about the same, but I think if we look back further, it seems like maybe that's gone down. Since. Yeah, there was some significant traffic in the beginning. I mean, I, I remember that there were certain points when our, our pie graph, you know, telnet scanning was like over 50%. Yes. And that was, that was crazy. Oh, huh, that's interesting. So, I mean, I guess it, it seems like maybe some of these kinds of devices or are kind of starting to decrease, or maybe the number of devices infected with malware is starting to decrease, mm. not the number of devices that are out there that have the problem. Well, they may, I, I like to, now this is speculation, I like to think that they're they're moving on to other vulnerabilities, mm. like the other ones we've seen on like the port 81, and there was a port 9000. Right, right. I feel like people aren't just relying on the simple um, Perhaps maybe stuff. even the malware has evolved, because now, you know, this might represent some older version of malware, and the newer version of malware might not be working the same way. It's possible. Port 445 TCP, that's oh, that wow. WannaCry and Petya activity, and it's been pretty cyclical daily for a while. Here at the very start, that spike, that was when we first started seeing it, and this is a 60-day graph. You know, I think what's interesting here is that when the WannaCry issue first came to light, you know, that's this beginning right there, yep. and it was in the media, and you know, everybody was paying attention to it, and look how significantly that activity had dropped. Mm -hmm. But since, it's really picked up. And now, I mean, you could see this is the number of sources scanning on the sport. And it's, just, it's even higher than it was at the peak with WannaCry. Yeah. So I think that means this activity is continuing. There are devices out there that are having this problem. I'm just thinking these are the internet-connected devices that are, like, directly connected to the internet. But I wonder how many devices there are behind, like, gateways and NATs for you know, some enterprises or whatever that maybe are experiencing this type of issue that you wouldn't even see in this graph. That's true. I mean, you, you wouldn't know if somebody were to have their own private breakout of WannaCry. Uh, and I think the, the problem for those is, you know, anytime anybody takes an asset that has a problem, brings it to the internet, mm -hmm. it can get infected there and then bring it back into the enterprise and really spread the infection like wildfire. That's true. That's something uh, to really think about, I guess. So uh, scan sources on port 81 have actually significantly dropped. And that was a Perseri, like I was saying before. It's still a significant um, source of, of scan traffic. Just the number of sources has gone down quite a bit. I mean, over here on the left at the peak, we saw traffic in the range of 16,000 sources per hour. Um, only this past week it was, I want to say, 5,000 sources per hour, but it also bottomed out recently around two to three, which is kind of interesting. 
it suggests to me that there's a single botnet that maybe someone had affected some change on, maybe it's retasked itself, maybe if we're lucky someone decided to do a takedown on it and just keep quiet about it. Who knows, but this traffic has definitely uh, suffered a hit in the last uh, week or so. And that would be good news for uh, the community at large. Absolutely. Similarly, which is oh. kind of curious, port 9000 TCP, uh, which was we believe was targeting a very specific DVR brand, also took a hit. Actually, is that the same exact time frame? I mean, it's very similar. It is. Yeah. It is quite similar if you look at those two those two graphs. Wow. So the big surprise in the internet weather this week was that there were two ports, uh, 81 and 9000, that had a sudden drop off in the number of hosts scanning. Now, typically, that means that a single botnet or a group of botnets potentially um, decided to stop scanning at once. Something happened, somebody got taken off the network. Uh, really curious as to what happened there. We may never learn that story, but uh, maybe we will. That's quite something. We're not sure what it means, but it almost seems like instantaneously all of these computers were told, hey, stop paying attention to this port. Those are the kind of small changes we'll look for to let us know, hey, we should be paying attention to this because I'm sure that somewhere else, something else popped up. And now we have to find that. Port 1433 TCP, the number of scan flows, uh, had been trending down for the last couple of weeks. Uh, seems to be had a little bit of a, a, a spike recently. But yeah, it's, um, it's still interesting as to why this is occurring. I think we, we talked about the number of scan flows is significant, but the number of sources is, is not high enough to make it on the top 10. Yeah. So. That was pretty curious to it's me. Probably specific security researchers or maybe somebody specific who's looking for, for something here. Yeah. And I know that there's a lot of uh, like internet survey traffic, you know, people trying to figure out what's on the internet, um, like Shodan and, and certain universities. Sure. So it could be related to something like that. Could be. And that's it for the weather. All right. Well, that was simple. Yeah. So even though I've been you know, doing cybersecurity for a couple of years now, and I consider myself pretty knowledgeable, I think, um, it's always cool to have experts like Gotti and, and Jim on to talk about the areas that they're definitely experts in. I always feel like, just from listening to them talk, I, I come off feeling a little bit smarter about these sorts of things. The views expressed on AT&T ThreatTrack are those of the participants and do not necessarily represent the views of AT&T or any other person or entity.